Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. So before we get into this one, quick content warning. Um, We are going to be discussing issues around weight, weight loss, fad diets, um, and some violence, some grief. Uh, Not so much on those last two, but the first three, like weight, weight loss, a lot. So if that's something that's triggering for you, or especially now when we're in the time of resolutions and and a lot of those often do involve dieting and weight, uh, then I would probably skip this one (laughs) or at least skip the first half. Just the first half. Yes, because we are doing something interesting today where we're talking about two short stories that really had a big impact on me when I was younger and I guess now because I still think about them. Um, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But Samantha, do you have any short stories that you read in high school or just when you were younger that really stuck with you? Yeah, the ones that traumatized me were the ones <laughs> that I remember the most. Uh, yeah. Rose, a Rose for Emily, I told you about, which is the William Faulkner one. That mm-hmm. I was like, what is this? And then um, A Good Man is Hard to Find, which yeah. is the uh, Flannery O'Connor. And I've actually really uh, went through all of her short collection because... She's a Georgia person, and so I felt like I needed to connect. And I love Southern Gothic. Like That is probably some of, some of my favorite uh, genre books. Like Flannery O'Connor, she's okay and all, but Carson McCullers was my person um, and mm-hmm. love her stories. So things like that uh, really got into it. But I those were the ones that pierced my brain the most of like, what is happening? Why did I read this? Why? Like that <laughs> typically, and I guess it's probably a sign of a great book. And that's the same thing I've always said. It's like, yes, I hate them, but they're amazing writers because they are the worst for putting this in my head and I can't yeah. let it go. So those two short stories uh, stick with me the most from high school. Mm-hmm. I do love a good novella. So yeah. uh, like uh, Carson McCullers has a couple of really good short uh, novellas. I also read Of Mice and Men in middle school and cried for three days. Aww. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, but I do love Steinbeck as well, who is not necessarily uh, Southern Gothic, but was kind of in that time frame. So mm-hmm. those are the stories that I remember. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I, I was thinking about this because we're, today we're talking about one that I imagine most of you haven't heard of called Lose Now, Pay Later. I've but never heard of the story. Me totally and my friends, it. we read it in ninth grade, I think, and we still talk about it. And then we're, we're talking about Neil Gaiman's The Problem with Susan, The Problem of Susan, excuse me. And I do think it's really fascinating that when I, there were a lot of literature stories that I read, short stories I read in literature class that I it's, they stuck out to me and I remember them to this day. And when I was in 10th grade, we did a whole uh, section on um, religious stories from around the world. And that actually had a huge impact on me and my, because I grew up very religious, but I was kind of stepping away. And that was part of that where I was like, this story is essentially the same as Noah's Ark. And it was written way earlier. And I was being very like <laughs> logical about it and annoying about it. But yeah, and then there was another story that I still think of to this day. I can't remember like any of the details other than the main character was kind of a, a he was a, a male teenager and he was kind of a jerk and he kind of went out and did all the stuff and cut his family out and really burnt them, left them burnt. And then he went through all of this like trauma and he came back 
And the family just accepted him and they were so happy to see him again. And I just remember, for some reason, that really stuck with me. Um, Another one, Harrison Bergeron, which was written by Kurt Vonnegut in 1961. I reread it. It's really short, just kind of because I found it online when I was doing the research for this. And it's got a lot of interesting stuff in there. That might be a, maybe we'll come back if we ever do another short story thing again. I will say, Kurt Vonnegut's short stories are so different from his uh, novels that it threw me when I first read Mm -hmm. it because I was expecting one thing, but I loved it. I was like, wait, Uh, it was almost reminiscent of Truman Capote and his short stories as well that I was like, wait, wait, what? But I know that's not the case necessarily because they're very different styles. It's very beautiful in each of its way. Uh, but I really enjoyed uh, his short stories. It did go more into that literary world that I knew because I'm not a big sci-fi fan. And honestly, I don't think Hart Vonnegut is super sci-fi. He does mm-hmm. have that futuristic vibe to everything he does. And yeah. that's why I think I like his stuff. And I think he's hilarious. But his actual short stories are very reminiscent to the literary works, to me, of Trim and Capote's, like, kind of very lyrical yeah. way. But don't get me started. <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> I want to get you started. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it was so beautiful. fun. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. I'm, and I'm glad I reread it. And, yeah, there's just a lot of stuff we could talk about now, especially in our modern context, because it is very fascinating to me to read a story that's set in the future when we're kind of approaching that date. Um, (laughs) It's like, well, where are we when it comes to that? Which is a good segue into the first story we're going to read. Well, not read, that we read and we're going to talk about, um, which you can find for free online. And it is called Do's Now, Pay Later. So yes, I did. I read this in ninth grade literature. It's by Carol Farley. I think it was published in 1991, but it was surprisingly hard to check down. I guess it's just like me and my friend group that remember this story so well. I like it. Yeah. It's definitely got some language we get in trouble for using on this podcast, like crazy and dumb in it. Um, And I couldn't find too much about the author, but here's hoping she isn't a terrible human being. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But me and my friends, yeah, we talk about the story pretty frequently. And since it's all about fad diets gone really, really wrong, we thought it was sort of appropriate um, for all this new year, new you messaging. And let's get into the plot. So it is about two girls, Deb and Trinja, um, and I'm guessing on how to pronounce that. It's T-R-I-N-J-A. And they they encounter this news store at a mall selling something called Swooties. And this is another reason I think it's 1991 is probably correct, because it feels very 90s to me. Mm-hmm. So the shop sounds like the fanciest frozen yogurt shop you've ever heard of. And yeah, it, it, it reminds me of the Froyo trend, which was taking off in the in the 1990s in America. Um, so very bright, very clean, but no employees in sight. There's a sign inside the shop that reads, sweets plus goodies equals swooties. I'm pronouncing it swooties, but I guess it would be swooties? <laughs> I'm saying swooties. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> um, Sooties came in a variety of flavors. Peanut butter crunch, butter rum pecan, coconut almond marshmallow, and chocolate nut mint. And best of all, they were free. I feel like those flavors are very adult flavors. Because as a kid, I would never go for the coconut almond. I'd be like, what? What is this? (laughs) I I 
might, but it would be for the coconut and not the almond, if that makes sense. Right. I really love okay. coconut. <laughs> so like butter fudge crunch, even though like, yeah, that sounds like it would be a lot more uh, child-friendly, mm. but whatever. So mm-hmm. Deb, the narrator, is suspicious, a little on edge about how bright and um, empty the story is, and doubtful that they are truly free. Chinja is really excited about it, though. So Deb mentions she's on a diet and is therefore always thinking about food. The smell lures them in, and they try some from the automated machine that dispenses a chocolate-covered cone and then a swirl of something with a similar consistency to a soft serve, which, by the way, I still can't quite grasp this. Mm-hmm. Um, by all accounts, they're delicious, and they the pair try every flavor before leaving. Uh, Trinja vowing to diet for a whole year to make up for it. Um, as they exit, they tell others passing by to go and try some. Yes. So this is the thing we talk about the most is the descriptions of how good they taste. Like we still think about how good they sounded. <laughs> how much we want them. So here's a quote. Smoothies aren't cold like ice cream or warm like cooked pudding, but they are a blending of both in temperature and texture. The flavor melts instantly, and your whole mouth and brain are flooded with taste and impressions. Like the first smoothie I tried, coconut almond marshmallow. Suddenly, as my mouth separated the individual taste, my brain bursted into memories associated with each flavor. I felt as if I were lying on a warm beach, all covered with coconut suntan oil. Then I heard myself giggling and singing as a group of us roasted marshmallows around a campfire. Then I lived the long ago moments of biting into the special Christmas cookies with almonds my grandmother made when I was little. And that's something we have talked about is this kind of nostalgia of of food and how powerful that can be. So yes, foodies take off. And despite achieving widespread popularity, the product remains free. Um, People are so excited about foodies that that nobody really asks any questions about it. Someone was paying the rent, and the product was determined to be safe for human consumption. People lined up to get their hands on some smoothies, and the machines never seem to run out. And everyone who partakes starts to gain weight. Um, Trinja and Deb complain about it, knowing the smoothies are to blame, leading Deb to ask aloud, if only there was some easy way to eat all the smoothies we want and still not gain any weight. Well... Ask and you shall receive. Deb almost immediately notices a new fixture in the mall parking lot, a tall white telephone booth-sized box. A flashing light next to it reads, The Slimmer. Um, And a thin, tan, short woman with a, quote, strange-sounding voice is standing outside of it, telling the girls that it is a machine to make you slimmer, and that if they step inside, they'll lose unwanted fat. Deb is taken aback, at this woman's confidence, knowing that, quote, in the old days, <laughs> people believed they could lose weight quickly, but in 2041, they weren't that gullible. They knew fad diets don't work, and that's that. The woman explains that it is a new process and that instant removal of fat costs 25 yen per pound. Was this supposed to be based in China? Or, uh, no, so I... Uh, Japan. So I think because of the time it was written, Japan was a big economic power. And that's actually one of the reasons we see so many damaging stereotypes, Asian stereotypes in uh, 80s, 90s movies, was to kind of combat that. So I think because of when this was written, she was imagining that in the future, Japan was the the power. So Vonnegut. Yeah. 
I mean, he also thought that way too. I think, but it was more uh, China at that point in his yeah. in his books. But that they would be in power in future, mm-hmm. which maybe they're not wrong. Um, <laughs> though they are both dubious, the woman's confidence convinces Deb to give it a go, digging up 130 yen. Literally, they just say, "Well, I mean, how much money do you have?" And the woman pushes, yeah. them, <laughs> takes the money, and pushes yeah. them in. Uh, yeah. And the woman pushes Deb inside the booth, slams the door behind her. There's a humming sound, and before Deb can scream, Trinja opens the door, yelling at the woman when she says that five pounds are gone. In a daze, Deb says her jeans feel loose, but Trinja says it's in her all in her imagination. However, when Deb weighs herself, it turns out to be true. So, yes. Excited, <laughs> the girls scrounge up as much money as they can and head back to the mall. The woman reveals, for every 10 pounds you lose, because, you know, I mean, Trinja did more, than just five. Mm -hmm. She has to prick your wrist, leaving behind a tiny little mark for, quote, safety reasons. Um, And the girls are so relieved at the weight loss and the prospect of never having to diet again. They accept this without question. Yes. And soon after, slimmers start appearing all over the world right next to Swooty stores. Everyone loves them, and the population at large gets skinnier. Some people have four or five pinpricks around their wrist, um, but no one really understands how the machines work. The machine attendants, who are all just kind of slightly off, will explain it, but it's too technical to really understand. And in the words of Trinja, people really didn't care how they worked because it meant they could eat sooties all day long and not gain an ounce, and that's what mattered. Everyone seems to love Swooties and Slimmers, except for Deb's 10-year-old brother, Trevor. He theorizes that they are the plot of aliens from outer space who are plumping people up with Swooties and then harvesting the fat collected from Slimmers for fuel that once the dots circle someone's wrist completely, they will be cold, their fat content no longer of value. Of course, Deb and Trinja dismiss him, Deb thinking, quote, humans would never sacrifice their freedom and dignity just so they could eat and still be thin. Even aliens ought to know that. I could quit eating sweeties and using those slimmers anytime I want, but all those little blue marks Trinja and I have are beginning to look like delicate tattooed bracelets, and we both think they look really neat on our wrist. Ooh. <laughs> and that's the end. <laughs> Yeah, so it was interesting to reread this uh, because it's been, what, uh, two decades almost since I'd read it. And I I couldn't find it. And one night I just was determined to find it. And I I think I texted you about it then. I was like, we got to talk about this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But one thing in there, I kind of wanted to talk about, um, because mall culture is kind of dying. Has right. been dying. Um, but when I was growing up, this was a thing. Uh, you, you'd go to the mall, you'd get your your frozen yogurt or, or whatever it was. And there's just so pretzels. much... Pre- oh, the pretzels are so I good. I the pretzels. Yes. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. I love them too. Um, oh, yeah. And you would kind of hang out with your friends and do this. Um, and I think probably in middle school to high school... I would I would hang out with friends at the mall sometimes, but you know we both grew up in small towns, so this was a right. big endeavor. Like you had right. to get out. That was to a weekend trip. Yeah, it a was Saturday like at trip. least an hour away to get to to a mall. 
But I do think throughout this and even we just see it everywhere is this kind of fad diet idea, this diet culture thing, this fat phobia of people wanting to to eat these delicious sounding things but not wanting to to gain any weight from it and i i don't think i've ever done a fad diet per se but i've dieted i've oh. definitely done some extreme dieting <laughs> right i i would think that i i did not do many fad diets cuz i just that took too much discipline and i didn't mm-hmm. have that uh, meaning like whatever, the Whole30 um, I think existed. And I know Atkins was a huge thing when I was in college. And so people were all about it. And I was like, there's no way only eating meat is healthy for you. There's no way. Yeah. But again, like I was like, I, whatever, people do what they need to do. I'm not going to, I'm not going to push or judge or anything, but I could not do it. But I was all about the calorie counting. Like, that yeah. is something that I have been really dangerously obsessed with, like keeping underneath a certain amount. And yeah. that's my obsession was mm-hmm. that instead of just necessarily like, and I guess calorie counting is a fad of of itself, like kind of a trend in itself, a mm-hmm. tactic. But yeah, like it's a whole level of like, okay, this level of obsession, yeah. there's something to be concerned about. Yeah, I was the same. And I think I told you, for a while, I was keeping, I was using an app to keep track. And the app actually sent me a message and it said, if this is true, this is dangerous. Right. <laughs> yeah. This is so pervasive. And we've talked about it a lot, but especially for younger girls who are kind of observing through perhaps our, our moms or um, other people in our lives or entertainment. Like maybe we're not directly getting the messages, which we usually are, but there's also just this underlying everywhere you look or everything you hear that it, you should look this way. And I think for me, it's still hard to just enjoy something, mm-hmm. <laughs> to just enjoy. Like if I had a sudi, I would be thinking like the whole day, like guilt, I'd be feeling guilty. And like, how can I counteract that? Mm-hmm. Which is just not a fun... I'm not saying you shouldn't be aware of what you're putting in your body, but I think it goes beyond that. It goes to, you can't have those, you can't have anything without feeling guilty about it, to be honest. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And sort of that whole idea at the end of, I, where, where they say, you know, we would never give up everything just to look this way and, um, kind of, I've been thinking about that in terms of uh, what we talked about recently with the pandemic and health and how you and I were saying, like, we know we're going to pay for this. Just like the title of the story is like, we know I'm not going into the dentist. I need to go to the dentist. I'm going to pay for this later. But kind of that putting off of right now, I would rather look this way and I will deal with the, the impacts later, which is very that eating disorder territory. Mm hmm. Yeah. And then another big theme throughout this is sort of the whole idea, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. There is a whole Seinfeld episode about actually frozen yogurt and this very thing. There's not aliens involved, but there is lying about content in the ingredients involved. Right. Also, this whole idea of no such thing as a free lunch. You know, they're giving away this free yogurt. 
and people aren't really asking questions because they like it. Uh, so it's a big theme throughout. And then, just because you know I love this, Samantha, I wanted to touch on some of the old tech. <laughs> because this takes place in 2041. Right. But it's you can tell it's very much an imagined future that is the product of its time. Also, it was written for children. It was specifically aimed uh, towards, I think it was, I read it in high school, but I think it was aimed towards like 7th and 8th grade. But there's the fax machine I love that in the 80s and 90s, we thought the fax machine was uh, That's the whole, like, the future for Back to, Back the, to future. the Future. Yeah. Literally is how they communicate is via TV, which uh-huh. they weren't wrong because we, yeah. they can do that. The whole, like, computer, like, Skyping video, which didn't exist at that point in time. But also the fax machine that was in every room that every household had. That was mm-hmm. the prediction of the future. I know. It, it cracks me up every time. Right. <laughs> um, also, yes, that malls would still be kind of this place where we congregate and hang around. And maybe malls will make a comeback. I don't know. But right now, I don't... They seem to be on their way out. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. And then, yeah, Japan has an economic power. So I just... I find all of that interesting when people are imagining the future. And I mean, 2041 isn't that far away, as scary as that is. Right. But yeah, it's just sort of interesting to see where we are versus <laughs> what people imagined would be the future. Okay, so I do recommend, like, if as long as you're not going to be triggered by away issues, which I totally understand um, if you are, and it's definitely, I would say, don't risk it. <laughs> Although you've already come through this, so I recommend it. Like I said, you can find you can find it for free online. It's really short. It's like seven pages. Mm-hmm. But moving on, let's talk about the Problem of Susan, which is a Neil Gaiman short story you can also find online for free. But it's also a whole concept now. And we're going to talk about that a bit. And I, I did think, you know, we don't normally try to highlight works by men in this segment. But because it did become this whole thing to describe this issue, which we are going to talk about if you haven't heard of it. I also thought about Forever Winter, Never Christmas, which is kind of the whole thing of uh, The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. Right. Is Narnia's Forever Winter, Never Christmas. And as a lot of us are preparing to enter a weekend of snow and chills, (laughs) I thought it was appropriate. So did you ever read Chronicles of Narnia, Samantha? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I actually had the old school version of it um, where it begins with the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe with all of the 60s drawings uh, and its glory. I lost it in a fire, and I've been on the search for that type Uh, of, that specific series because I don't like this new switch up with the magician's nephew, which we know is a prequel. I know. But it doesn't belong in there like that. He wrote it yeah. like that for a reason. I'm weirdly purist about that. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> unnecessarily so. But I really have been trying to find the old school versions of it because I really loved those books. And it wasn't until you brought this back up that I forgot the last battle. I completely mm-hmm. forgot what happened. Out of my head, I don't know if it's because, you know, uh, it's been so long. And it's been a long, long time. 
And I used these books uh, when I was teaching the Bible as part of yeah. my curriculum um, in talking about each of the characters. And I really did forget about Susan's character in the end. I was like, oh, oh. Yeah. Oh. So yeah. it's a whole level of like trying to remember mm-hmm. where, where, we, where we came from with this. Also, in the movie, Ben Barnes, that's where I was introduced to Ben Barnes in the second movie, who is Westworld. Yeah, he was a bad guy in Westworld. Oh. Yeah, and oh. then he was, yeah, he was in several other movies, and he's in several other shows that I absolutely love. He was in, he's been one of the Marvel ones. Is it Iron Fist? I think he's in Iron mm-hmm. Fist, which is forgettable. Uh, but <laughs> any of those things, I can't remember. But I loved Ben Barnes, and I think he's fantastic. Uh, but this, I remember them trying to pair him and Susan up. I was like, ew. Yeah. He's 20 yeah. years older than her. Stop this. But yeah. anyway, that's a sidetracking of all of Chronicles of Narnia. Mm-hmm. But yes, I loved it, loved it, loved it. I loved C.S. Lewis during that time in my wondering, because he also wasn't as a big snob as Tolkien. I'm sorry. <laughs> mm-hmm. When it comes to English literature, I know people are very, very like purist in that mode too. And I, so therefore, I felt like he was a little more open do I agree? Like, thinking back on it now, I'm like, oh, I have a whole different perspective. But, yeah. Yeah. Books yeah. meant a lot to me at that point in time. Yeah. I loved them when I was a kid. Um, I loved, there was an animated Lion, yeah. Witch, in the Wardrobe I loved. And I went through such an intense period of loving them that I actually wrote fan fiction for it. Of course you did. Yeah. But, I mean, it's pretty... It's kind of rare. There are things that I love, love, love more than I loved that that I never wrote fan fiction for, but I wrote fan fiction for it. Yeah. And that's that's pretty indicative of how much I loved it. I, if in case anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, I'm going to explain it more in a second. But depending on when you bought, these are a, a book series of seven books. I bought them at the time when The Magician's Nephew was the first in the series. But for people <laughs> before me, uh, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe came first. So if you're confused by that. <laughs> I did. I loved it. And then I just got so weird about religion and then I kind of just turned away. But I do right. remember them pretty well. Um, and we're going to, yeah, we're going to get into all of this. But okay, for anyone who doesn't know, The Chronicles of Narnia is, yes, a seven-book series written by C.S. Lewis, first published in 1950 through 1956. And there have since been animated and live adaptions for the screen. We're not going to go too deeply into the plot. Uh, weirdly enough, you can check out the Saver podcast that I do. We did an episode on fictional foods of Narnia for more information. We really so what talked is Turkish about- Delight then? Tell me that. Because uh, I have a weird picture <laughs> in my head. And then when someone told me what it was, I was like, wait, what? Yeah, so it's... Kind of a gelatin-based, it's usually lightly sweet with like rose, and it's got some sugar on top, but it's sort of a, a gelatin-light dessert. Yeah. Now, okay. that being said, a lot of people have said it, it's kind of, it represents drugs. Drugs, In okay. this case. Yeah. yeah. Yes, because it is something that the witch gives out uh, to to Edmund in particular in this case to kind of get him hooked. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I love anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about must be, what is going on here? <laughs> There's so many. There is literal Christian workbooks that go along yes. with these series to talk yes. about and analyze uh, the depth of 
of the pretty much the origin story. So it's kind of like saying this is taking Genesis into a modern day tale, which is also why Tolkien didn't like it. He's like, you're hitting the, you're being too obvious and over the top. Right. Back to. Right, which we'll touch on in a second more a little bit. But okay, despite the fact that Lewis, who yes, wrote a lot about religion, was adamant these books weren't an allegory, a religious allegory in specific. They have often been interpreted through a religious lens with Narnia being heaven and Aslan being God and or Jesus. Um, There's even a whole magic apple temptation thing that goes on. Yeah, there's a lot we could get into, but that would be a different podcast. So for our purposes, we're focusing on the Pevensey children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, who have adventures and become royalty in Narnia. However, as Susan grows older, she is, quote, no longer a friend of Narnia, aka for a lot of people. Yep, heaven, even though, yes, Lewis disputed this and said perhaps one day Susan could find her way. Um, Yeah, she's the second oldest. She's the oldest uh, daughter of this group. But so why is she no longer a friend of Narnia? Here we go. Here is the whole exchange from the book, The Last Battle, which is the final book. My sister Susan, answered Peter shortly and gravely, is no longer a friend of Narnia. Yes, said Eustace. And whenever you try to get her to come and talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, she says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy you're still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. Oh, Susan, said Jill. She's interested in nothing nowadays except nylons and lipstick and invitations. She always was a jolly sight too keen on being grown up. Grown up indeed, said the Lady Polly. I wish you would grow up. She wasted all her school time wanting to be the age she is now, and she'll waste all the rest of her life trying to stay that age. Her whole idea is to race on to the silliest times of one's life as quick as she can and then stop there as long as she can. Yep. And that's pretty much it. Um, (laughs) That's pretty much the attitude about her from everyone, her family and friends, notably Uh, Lucy doesn't say anything during this exchange. Aslan doesn't say anything during this exchange. Right. Mm -hmm. I find it, like, again, we'll come back to it, but in my mind, she at the very first book, she was already too grown as well, and they accused her of that from jump. So I found that interesting that that's how it built up. But again, Mm -hmm. I forgot the last battle completely. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, here we go. (laughs) Susan was always the more practical one. She was a caregiver, and I feel like that seems on brand, uh, which makes sense because the children had lost their mother, and she was always making sure they had their coats and that they ate. Uh, She is the oldest girl and referred to as, quote, little mother. She was kind, gentle, and yes, very beautiful. Uh, So, what's the issue? Uh, It seemed to be she's choosing being an adult over Narnia and Aslan, the the fantasy, essentially. Um, Mm -hmm. Lewis wrote in a letter about her that she was, quote, a rather silly, conceited young woman. Even though that really doesn't seem to match up with everything else we, the readers, knew about her, although we are supposed to think her annoying. Yeah. Um, some believe he did this more out of his need for her to represent something. Mm-hmm. Quote, the believer that walks away from faith instead of telling the story true to the character. Yeah, so uh, there's this is kind of a tricky conversation, actually, because, and we're going to get into it, but it almost seems like it was just confusion. Right. Like it was kind of out of nowhere. There was no 
attempt, like this, there was this mention of her, she's not coming back to Narnia, and that's it. Like there was no right. attempt to like redeem her or talk to her or anything with her. It was just like, oh, never talk about her again. <laughs> right. Yeah, again, like I said uh, to you when we were originally talking about this, I was like, I had to go back and figure out what happened because I didn't mm-hmm. exactly understand what just happened when the book, right. when I read originally read the book. Yeah. And to the point, uh, and I'm, we're going to talk about more about this later. I know, but um, this was during the time that Passion and Purity was big. Uh, I don't know mm. if you know this book, Annie. No. Um, I'm so sorry. I'm very critical. I'm so sorry for the religious listeners if you're offended by this, but I will say it brought me a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. This one book that talks about a woman's place in religion. It is very stereotypical um, in some of the things that I get what they're saying, but at the same time could be really damaging to women. We talked about this during the purity, during our yeah. purity episode. But I think that was what Susan represented as being anti-Christian uh, woman. Right. If that makes too yeah. worldly. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, and we're definitely going to break break some of that down to you. And we are one day going to do an episode on religious trauma, and that's going to be fun. Um <laughs> That was that was that's the laugh that that deserved. (laughs) Kind of frightened. (laughs) Um, So another point to make here is Peter, who is older than Susan, was told he was too old to return to Narnia, but he did, and she didn't. And two male characters get painful redemption arcs, but she does not. And you mentioned earlier, Samantha, Eustace. Eustace is one of the worst characters to me in this entire book. Uh, And yes, it's supposed to be that he was childish and didn't understand. He'd gone through trauma. He'd lost his parents too and was a brat, essentially. But yeah, after he gets turned into a dragon for his greed and then freed of that spell, he repents, essentially, to Aslan and becomes whole again. But yeah, I think it's really interesting because uh, Lucy and Edmund are too old, which is why you see Eustace and Jill come into play because they're young enough to believe these. So they technically Mm -hmm. aged out too. Yeah, yeah. And that's... um, There are listeners... You might be surprised at how many people have written long essays about this. Oh, so many. So, so many. And they were all really interesting. And a lot of them had different viewpoints, which I found interesting too. Um, but somebody was saying, like, essentially, the message we're supposed to take is that you have to be young and believe, and never grow up, and never like be an adult and yeah. take care of people, or you can't go to what is essentially heaven. <laughs> right. So it's, a, um, and I just remember this idea. I have somewhere in one of my journals. I went through and did a whole dive, not only in the books, but compared it to specific. Bible verses. Like, I mm, went in. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, again, when I say yeah. these meant a lot to me in that point in time. Um, yeah, and essentially, this is kind of a play into childlike faith. Like, he was mm-hmm. being literal, even though he probably yeah. would deny it. But it is literal. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Oh, he's got a lot of interesting quotes about this, uh, C.S. Lewis. <laughs> But, okay, going back to what you were saying about, you know, the good Christian woman, um, I think a lot of folks thought that this whole sort of writing out of Susan was more that she had become shallow. But a lot of people point out, and I think we should point out, that the things that are listed are feminine things, patriarchal, 
feminine things put on to Susan, who has been told she needs to be an adult and take care of her siblings. And I think for a long time, my interpretation was that too, before I kind of got more nuanced as I grow up. But as a kid, I was like, oh, she wants to grow up. That's so gross. Like, so shallow. She could go to Narnia and be having fun, but instead she wants to do this. But it is very feminized. Like, we can't turn away from the fact that it is, purposely or not, that is very feminized, the things he lists. (laughs) Right. But also, these are things that he lists when women want to feel good about themselves. The lipstick, the stockings are very Mm -hmm. specific during a time where you're supposed to be natural and cowering. And so Mm -hmm. that was too bold of her to be. So I feel like that's to this day, that would be listed as a good godly character to dress up for your man, only for your man. Um, yeah, obviously. Um, right. Or for your, uh, yeah, it is man. It's very also heteronormative in this this idea. Mm-hmm. But but that fact, at that point in time, that was even too much. And that was being too loud, essentially, uh, yeah. too proud of what Drawing you look like. Attention. And so yeah. for women to be that at that point in time was a sin. Mm-hmm. And so you see that turn like, hmm, hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think, in case we didn't make it clear, she's a teenager. I think she might be 20. She's, yeah. I think she's early 20, like getting yeah. at past school a little bit. Mm-hmm. When this happens. So, yeah. I mean, it's just kind of a natural face <laughs> for, for women, but it does feel like when you're reading it, like, oh, wow, she can't go to heaven because she did this. <laughs> okay. She lipstick. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and as, as we said already, C.S. Lewis, he denies this, but also says she has time to repent. Like, it's not over for her. But also, it is for us, because no one else wrote that story. Um, <laughs> we can imagine it. We can write the fan fiction if we want. But, well, speaking of, okay, all of this discussion around this character led to Neil Gaiman writing The Problem of Susan in 2004. And the phrase has, yes, become sort of a catch-all to describe feminist and literary investigation into this character, which, as I said, there's a lot. And it's actually really, really interesting. I I recommend going to look into it more. But this whole thing was later turned into a comic. Both are fairly graphic in terms of violence and sex and sexual violence, so just... Asterisk that if that's not something you're into. You can definitely read about it and not have to read the whole thing, which is also very short. So the plot centers on Professor Hastings, an older woman who strongly resembles Susan, who lost her family in a train crash, which is how the last battle ended. Um, Susan loses her family in a train crash. It opens with her dreaming that she is with her siblings on a battlefield surrounded by the bodies of dead creatures. Later that day, she is interviewed by a student named Greta who is doing a profile on Hastings for the Literary Chronicle. Hastings is an author known for her work, A Quest for the Meanings in Children's Fiction. The two are discussing the history of children's fiction and famous examples when Greta realizes that Hastings lost her entire family in a train accident and says, just like Susan. And she tells Hastings how much that bothered her as a kid, um, so much so that she spoke to her teacher about it. And the teacher told her Susan still had time to repent, not believing, and the sin of Eve. So that was what the teacher kind of said was her sin, was not believing. Also, that whole thing with Eve. (laughs) That we talked about being a woman, yes. 
Yeah. So all of this prompts Greta to say, there must have been something else wrong with Susan, something they didn't tell us. Otherwise, she wouldn't have been damned like that, denied the heaven of further up and further in. Hastings says that she doubted Susan had time for lipstick and nylons after her whole family died, and that, quote, I don't know about the girl in the books, but remaining behind would have also meant that she was able to identify her brother's and her little sister's bodies. There were a lot of people dead in that crash. I was taken to a nearby school. It was the first day of term, and they had taken the bodies there. My older brother looked okay, like he was asleep. The other two were a bit messier. I remember looking at them and thinking, what if I'm wrong? What if it's not him after all? My younger brother was decapitated, you know. A god who would punish me for liking nylons and parties by making me walk through that school dining room with the flies to identify Ed. Well, he's enjoying himself a bit too much, isn't he? Like a cat getting the last ounce of enjoyment out of a mouse. Right, which is how the story begins, by the way. Yep. Hastings cuts the interview short, uh, and that night sleeps in her childhood bed looking through old photos. She notices children's books on the bedside tables and knows she's dreaming because she's never kept these kinds of books around. The one on top of the pile shows two girls weaving daisies into a lion's mane. Uh, Meanwhile, Greta dreams that she is on the same battlefield, and Aslan and the witch have come to an agreement. She will take the boys, and he will take the girls. She understands what must have happened, and she runs, but the beast is upon her before she is covered a dozen paces. The lion eats all of her except her head. This is all in her dream. And he leaves the head in one of her hands, just like the house cat at the beginning of the story, leaves parts of a mouse it has no desire for, uh, for later or as a gift. Again, referencing how Susan found a mouse at the doormat at the beginning of the story. Yeah, yeah. So that was, a lot of that was, quote, Greta watches, unable to shut her eyes as her brothers are transformed into monsters, and then, quote, the great beast ate her little sister more slowly, and it seemed to her with more relish and pleasure than it had eaten her. But then her little sister had always been its favorite. Then the witch disrobes and the lion tongues her, and they have sex, making Greta slash Susan, kind of in this dream, um, watch before finally eating her head. Greta wakes up thinking it's true that Susan didn't die, that this whole thing actually happened. And then here's another quote. She imagines the professor waking in the night and listening to the noises coming from the old Applewood wardrobe in the corner to the rustlings of all these gliding ghosts, which might be mistaken for the scurries of mice or rats, and to the padding of enormous velvet paws and the distant dangerous music of a hunting horn. She knows she is being ridiculous, although she will not be surprised when she reads of her professor's demise. Death comes in the night, she thinks, before she returns to sleep, like a lion." The white witch rides naked on the lion's golden back. Its muzzle is spotted with fresh scarlet blood. Then the vast pinkness of its tongue wipes around its face, and once more, it is perfectly clean. Oof. Oof. Okay. So there's a lot of things we can discuss about this, obviously. I did want to include this quote Gaiman said about it. There is so much in the books that I love, but each time I found the disposal of Susan to be intensely problematic and deeply irritating. I suppose I wanted to write a story that would be equally problematic and just as much of an irritant, if from a different direction, and to talk about the remarkable power of children's literature. And he's not the only author to have spoken out about this. Philip Pullman said, I just don't like the conclusions that Lewis comes to. After all that analysis, the way he shuts children out from heaven or whatever it is, on the grounds that one girl is interested in boys. She's a teenager. Ah, it's terrible. Sex. Can't have that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, we've already been... I'm so excited that you know a lot about this, Samantha, and I I got some background, and we have kind of... How did it impact us? 
So as we discussed, a lot of people took away from this whole thing that feminine things like makeup and stockings are frivolous and sinful and worth shutting you out of heaven for. And Eve kind of being the representative, kind of the first (laughs) example of that. And because I feel like my favorite character was Lucy. But a lot of people said like she Susan was their favorite character and she was generally well liked even if she wasn't she wasn't like a hated character. Right. And to have her just suddenly when you know even she was queen she was Susan the gentle and she was you know taking care of um children who needed it and just very kind and to kind of have that go from that to Right. Well, she's gone, and that's the that's the end of that. Don't worry. You know, it's interesting too because when we see the flashbacks uh, where they meet the adult uh-huh. king queens, yeah, and she is being forced into an arranged marriage. That's right, right, and she's yeah. the one that refuses to do so unless she can mm-hmm. pick her own, which would have been seen as valiant, but mm-hmm. yet that's not remembered. It's it's quite fascinating how the adult version of her in Narnia does not compare to the adult version of her in the real world. And right. why would it be so? Um, yeah. But I did, I do remember that specific scene because you're like, yeah, girl, go ahead. Tell them you're not going to marry right. anyone. You know, like you yeah. can choose because you are the high queen. You mm-hmm. do you. And then we see that flip. But like, yeah, right. it definitely does feel it needed to be a little bit on the nose, whether it's it was Lewis showing his disapproval for how women were acting during yeah. that time and wanted to bring him back to this is a religion or mm-hmm. not, or this is godly and what's not, or whether he just needed a villain and he found yeah. a way to make one of them a villain and it made sense for him as she is a woman and disposable. Yeah, well, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because somebody wrote a really interesting essay about kind of that idea where the author was saying, there's sort of a funny thing happening here that game and comments on directly is that we are really interpreting like as the audience interpreting it in a way that perhaps he didn't mean it but it doesn't change the fact we're interpreting it that way and that's how it impacted us but the author was saying like basically he got kind of lazy and so he's got four kids you got Edmund who is the betrayer who comes back you've got Lucy who is the natural believer You've got Peter, who is like, the he's Peter, the St. Peter, essentially. Right. And he needed somebody to be the opposite of Edmund, of the person who believed and then walked away, and she was the one that was left. And so right. he put it on her. But we were all, as readers, like, but wait. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make sense with all this other stuff you've said. <laughs> which which is, I, I thought that was a really interesting take on that. And throughout Gaiman's short story, there are these signifiers of sex associated with evil. You've got the witch's lipstick. You've got hints at Professor Hastings' sexuality. Um, In the dream, she notices the dead centaur's penis um, and wonders what it would have been like to kiss him. Um, She remembers past sexual experiences with men, um, making the point that in this framework, in this story, Susan is tied to evil for being sexual. Like, this is wrong. There's also throughout the frivolous 
desire for youth. Um, quote, there are things about herself that the professor despises. Her smell, for example. She smells like her grandmother smelled, like old women smell. And for this, she cannot forgive herself. So on waking, she bathes in scented water and naked and towel dried, dabs several drops of Chanel toilet water beneath her arms and on her neck. Um, and that's kind of like in there too of, I, I guess it feels like a contrast between she wanted to be an adult, that kind of narrative, she always wanted to be an adult. And now mm-hmm. that she is one, she's also kind of punishing herself and being societally punished for being an older woman. Right. Yeah. There's also, I just want to put this in here because it stuck out to me, um, how she thought she was old when she, quote, lost what was left of her virginity at 20, which I think probably a lot of us can identify with of thinking that's old. And then when you get older, thinking, oh no, that was so young. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That you yeah. were ready. Exactly, exactly. Um, she also, Hastings thinks about how young Greta looks. Another interesting take I read was this kind of idea that like God, the patriarchy comes for us all. That if God, in the context of literature, is the creation of man, and in this particular case it is, if we're saying like Aslan is the godlike figure, and C.S. Lewis is a man of his time that wrote it, and it stands to reason that he is a part of the patriarchy. So this whole idea of like the God, in this case Aslan, punishing Susan for being feminine or not fitting into whatever rules of this patriarchy, I thought that was an interesting, an interesting take as well. <laughs> Right. And when we, again, when we talk about Susan's role and the individual roles that he has placed on these characters, it is very obvious that it is a very male-led throughout. Whether it's Caspian that we're talking about, Ben Barnes' character that I mentioned earlier, um, coming to find the father and or talking about uh, Aslan being this lion who comes roaring through and evil being a woman, a witch, Tilda Swinton, who... Play the hell out of that character. Yes. Scared the hell out of me. I'm not gonna <laughs> yeah. lie, but like, really, obviously, again, women leader, evil, bad. Um, yeah. There's definitely notes of that that you have, you can't really ignore in yeah. any of that. He does mention to Lucy that she would not be a part of the battle, that she would be the healer. Mm-hmm. And though actually Susan is a part of the battle, she has the bow, and she mm-hmm. but she's also has a call for help, which uh, Peter comes running to. So like, there's a yeah. lot of things for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's a good point. And a lot of people um, brought that up as well. If like, if you look at the earlier ones, while she was always sort of the practical one, she was also pretty, like she rode on Aslan's back. She was there when he was resurrected. Like she was pretty stalwart. So yeah, just not that you can't go from being stalwart to not being stalwart. But again, it was just one of those things where people were like, this doesn't track. It doesn't feel right. As we said, there's that whole messaging of being adult equals being bad, um, especially for women. (laughs) Then there is trauma. So the the impetus behind this story that Neil Gaiman wrote actually was imagining like Susan was a woman who was left behind. She lost her whole family. And there's a scene at the end where it is kind of confusing. But yeah, they die in this train accident and then they're in Narnia. And as the reader, we realize they've died. And yeah, they're in Narnia. And, you know, they're happy and embracing and all this stuff. And Susan really doesn't, not mentioned. So she was just left behind and she's going to deal with this aftermath. And some people were really hurt that there wasn't even a thought of her. There wasn't even like, 
Oh, she wow, so that must suck. <laughs> exactly. But if we're looking at a Christian perspective of heaven, that's the intent, is that you will mm. forget that trauma. And if she yeah. is a trauma, part of that trauma, you don't remember her. Like, that is the joy of heaven. Because, honestly, that's one of the things that didn't trek with me. I was really hurt by the idea that I would forget everyone if yeah. I go to heaven. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of that narrative that you forget Everyone, and again, mm-hmm. I'm not going to go into the religious back and forth about religious religious trauma, which I laughed about earlier <laughs> because I was like, <laughs> "There's a lot there," mm-hmm. but that is one of the thoughts. Is yeah, and I think this is why I'm so confused because I'm still too connected to well, something bad happened, right? That translated into something amazing happening, and yeah, that means they forget, yeah, everything, and so that yeah. includes their sister who they had loved, um, and she is no longer a part of the story and not no longer a part of the narrative. Right. Yeah. And yeah, having her in this case go identify the bodies in this short story or like right. she's going to be dealing with this. Right. Which is just very, very painful. Um, and something else we've already mentioned and we've mentioned a lot, but these stories are more forgiving to white male characters and their trauma. And people pointed that out a lot of it. They, they was repenting and redeeming for a lot of male characters, but not so much for <laughs> female characters. Like right. you either were always a believer or you did one mistake and you're out. <laughs> well, yeah. And I don't know if I just remember one thing that really bothered me. It had nothing to do with Susan, but mm-hmm. when they do return and Lucy was supposed to make them believe and, and Aslan got mad at her because she did, could not convince them and mm. really kind of seemed like called her out. And yeah. Again, this is kind of that trauma, religious trauma that whether C.S. Lewis meant to do it, whether it was just something that was like supposed to be storytelling, but it's very true. Like this guilt on Christians in general, why didn't you convert them? Yeah. You were partially damned them to hell because you could not convince them. Right. Yeah. I, I will never forget one time when I was in seventh grade, my algebra teacher told me it's like I'm watching you walk off a cliff and I just want to save you. And I was like, uh-huh. um. oh, I had that done at my <laughs> workplace when I was a DJJ. And she was just like, you know, I love you so much. I don't want this for you. And I looked at it. And I was like, I know what you're doing. And it's sweet. And I know you mean this love, but. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, math teacher. Can we go back to math now? Um, and then really briefly to close this up, because I really, I find this so, so interesting. Legitimately, I find this interesting. A lot of people did make this argument of kind of a distinction between what C.S. Lewis meant and what he said he meant versus what we interpreted. And how much how much it matters or shouldn't matter. I think another interesting point somebody made is unless you went and like researched this and looked up the letters he wrote specifically about Susan that people wrote in about him, I'm like, why did you do this? And he would respond, you wouldn't know his response. We only have the books, right. really, unless right. you go beyond that. And some people did were saying like, there's just a very interesting line between kind of what Gaiman was talking about in this short story of researching children's book and searching for meaning like you and I did and then maybe being hurt by that or maybe internalizing these messages that might not have been intended but that did have the impact. Right. Especially for kids at a young age. So I just, I thought that was really interesting. And Lewis once wrote to someone that he thought this person who is concerned about Susan should go write the story of Susan. 
Was he being smart aleck? I don't think so. He might have been. He said it was like older. He liked children's literature. That was more of an adult thing. But a lot of people did say this was what was missing. We needed the story of Susan after this. Like if you're just going to write her out, we needed something. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why we're still talking about it today. That's why there's a whole thing called the problem of Susan. I mean, he did a prequel. He could do a post. Yeah. Well... Maybe it's time, Well, not Samantha. anymore. Not anymore. Yeah, not anymore, but you and I could get in on this. Actually, you probably cannot. could. Lawyers and stuff. Um, right. But <laughs> this is yeah. what fan fiction is for. Right. But yeah, the, I, this was a fun conversation. I'm glad we had it. I yeah. think we could return to it at another date. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. I think, especially when it comes to like relig- religious fiction and women mm-hmm. and the connotations, because I read many a religious romance novels. And mm. let me tell you, mm. mm-hmm. the amount of marital discourse and what women were supposed to do and be, man, that's traumatizing in itself. Um, <laughs> uh, I even yeah. read one book where she was raped, <gasps> got left by her pastor husband, and but she was accepted by another godly man, so she's okay. Girl. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll come back to it. And I thought it was it. something at the time. And I thought it was oh. something at the time. Oh. Coming back to now yeah. and being like, oh my God, what was I thinking? Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of what we're talking about. Why did somebody say, it's like we're searching for meaning or meaning wasn't there, but we made it then. But because of the product of their time and how we're raised and how it was written, who can blame us? <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> who can blame us? Okay. Well, we we've talked a lot about this. I love it. So, listeners, if you have any short stories or any books um, to recommend to us for this or any recommendations at all, we love to get them. You can email us at stephaniedmomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast or on Instagram at Stuff I Never Told You. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Christina. The best. Oh, yes. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff on Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.